2: my special guest this week, Bill Hemmer, Fox News anchor and host of America's Newsroom on the Fox News channel. Bill, welcome to A
3: Current Life. Jimmy, thank you. It's a, it's an honor to be with you, and, get, and good day to you as well.
2: Thank you. Well, I'm very appreciative that you've made the time and in your incredibly busy schedule to join us, and if you'll bear with me, I'd like to give you a proper introduction. Okay. Especially having grown up in, in my hometown of Cincinnati, uh, uh you your your career started at WCPO CBS in Cincinnati as a weekend sports anchor and from there you were offered a position in Atlanta Georgia working for CNN as the co-host of American Morning and anchored CNN Live Today and CNN Tonight uh you were you were with CNN for 10 years before turning down the opportunity to move to DC and serve as a senior White House correspondent you then uh, uh moved to New York and are now have been with Fox for 7 years and are the news anchor and co-host of America's Newsroom. Uh, you've had quite a career. We follow you a, a great deal in Cincinnati because we're from the same place, and it's a real honor to have you on the show.
3: Oh, terrific. Thank you. And it's a, it's a pleasure being with you. There's a lot to cover there, huh?
2: Well, there is, and uh, you've uh, you've had a great life. I actually want to start, like I do often on this show, with the early years of your growing up in Cincinnati and, and uh, a uh, middle child in a family of five with three sisters and one brother.
3: What was that like growing up in? Cincinnati? Yeah, I, I think I'm a classic middle child.
4: <laughs> so you, know, was you I. have to.
3: You, well, you have to. Um, I, I don't know what Freud would say, but I, I think that definition is that you have to make sure everybody's okay, right? So yep. you have. To, <laughs> As a middle child, you have to make sure your older brothers and sisters are okay and your younger sisters are all right and that everybody's happy and good. So if that is the definition, I fit it quite well.
2: Well, I, 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 I know your older brother, Andy. He's, he's uh, an incredible public relations guru, and I've worked with him on numerous occasions and was after him for a long time to, to get you to come on the show. And, uh you know, I've, I've studied your life and read everything I could and I guess, you know, I'd like to know what some of your interests were when you were younger growing up. I yeah, mean, I, uh, I,
3: um, Andy's terrific by the way and you're very nice to say kind words about him. Uh, he, he really knows what he's doing too. Um, when it comes to the PR end of it and, uh, and the marketing, he's got so much experience in that area and uh, he's, he's pretty much what brings us together today and I, I think there's, um, <clears throat> There's a way to go back in time, I guess, on the west side of Cincinnati growing up, um, with uh the Hammer House that was always loud <laughs> and always active. And looking back these days I, I wonder uh How the neighbors took all that activity inside of those four walls that seemed to be busting at all hours of the day. But, you know, we're not short on characters and personalities at the Hemmer House. And, um, you know, growing up, one of my parents' priorities was to, was to make sure that the family was, um, was a family and, uh, in every sense of the word, uh, that we did things together, that we, um, built the uh, the bonds and the relationships that are necessary to to last a lifetime and to make sure that we have each other's backs at all times. Right? I think my parents, they may quibble with this, but I always thought that they were really good at keeping keeping us at arm's length in terms of allowing us to make our own mistakes in life along the way. Um, I always said that they allowed us to step in our own pile, and if, if 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 that's what happened, then it was our duty, obligation, responsibility to to clean it up and figure it out. Well, you and, know, uh,
2: I uh, it's funny you 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 mention that because your parents actually had a uh, what they called the round table, and yeah, it was we... <laughs> a way for your family to build, I guess, the relationships, and and they used that technique. Can you explain that a little bit?
3: yeah this was a um sometimes grueling sometimes enjoyable, sometimes painful, sometimes hilarious um but um my parents were always um, insistent that you know, our ability to communicate with each other was as best as it could be because you know they knew that that was the key to their own relationship and their lives and you know they've been married 50 years most wow. of them joyous jimmy <laughs> um not all of them but most of them I'm certain and the round table w- was an idea where we would all get together and we would start at one end of the table it was either from youngest to oldest or oldest to youngest uh whichever we preferred for for that particular session we'll call it and uh, you had just had to explain kind of what was going on in your life and uh, share a few things, um, which was the easy part, because the trick there, Jimmy, was not give up a whole lot of information. The tough part is that anyone else sitting at the table was allowed to answer, ask you a question. Wow. And uh, you had the option to either answer that question or pass. And uh, sometimes it went really well, and sometimes in the end it did not turn out probably the, quite the way my mom and dad had hoped. But that, that, was, that was an early tool that we were given from a from really young age.
2: Well, you know, we had, we had six kids, and uh, at that time my grandparents or my grandmother was around, and we had a few dogs, and we had this big table, and we actually had a seating chart. And uh, it was in a bit mortifying because we had to be very more formal but we went around the table every night, and we would have to say what we achieved that particular day or
3: oh, wow. what was on our
2: mind. And, you know, I think it does shape you. I think when you have a big family, our family was put together because my mother passed away when I was little. And, you know, when you have a big family, people have to find their own way. And and especially, as you said, as a middle child, you want to make sure everybody's happy, but, you know, and everybody's okay. But it does help shape. Your life, and and I know as you got older, you made some pretty important decisions in your life that obviously helped you pave your own road. And I know I see in Andy a uniqueness as well. So uh-huh. I,
3: well, you're you're very kind to say that. What did you call your um, <laughs> your moment at the dinner table?
2: Well, I
3: I don't know that we had a name for it, but uh-huh. I
2: remember vividly when I would look. Come, we would finish our dinner, and we would all go and do what we wanted to do. And then at about an hour later, we'd come back downstairs, and my younger brother, who actually is in uh, the, the news business as well as a sound man and travels all over the world doing that, would still be sitting at the table because he hadn't eaten his vegetables. And the dog <laughs> was sitting at his feet, and we knew, and we would help him, try to get as many vegetables off his plate as possible so he could go and play with the rest of us. So uh-huh. we had a very formal setting, but it was funny, and it was, it was at times difficult because to spill your guts in front of uh, yeah. your brothers and sisters and family, you, you know, you get called on it.
3: Yeah, My parents used to have a saying that feelings are neither right nor wrong. They just are, and it's up to you to accept them or to deal or adapt to them. And a, you know we like were you, had, you know very we were smart
2: parents. What, what, what's that Jimmy? You had very smart parents,
3: <laughs> yes, they are, and I love them um, um with, with all with every part of me and um i'm grateful, uh, really really grateful and lucky and you know we grew up with a Catholic family, so um we were a big West side Cincinnati Catholic family, and uh, to this day my my mom had a um she had a um, i would guess it would be a countenance of of mary that hangs on our wall in our living room and she would have the pictures of the five kids surrounding it and um it was always incumbent upon us that when we when we came home that we would check and see how close or how far we were away from mary and and if we were close that meant we were kind of we needed a little more attention or a little more help in our lives but it was always a sigh of relief when you were the furthest removed from mary
2: do you think we've gotten away from some of that as we've uh as you know as as we've all grown in this information age do you think a lot of that's changed where the family unit has been affected
3: i think um in ways it has and i think also with technology it's helped us stay close now, i've been living away from home now for 15 16 years i uh, left in 95 2012 17 years and i I find now whether you know I'm not a big Facebook guy, but um you know I can follow my nieces and nephews on twitter <laughs> and and keep track of them that way and uh, my high school Cincinnati Elder High School, several years ago, they started streaming the football games on Friday nights oh over the God. internet, and yeah, so i I can watch that through technology, and you know that's a branch um and a connection to one another that we we never had before. Um, but I think also, you know, that whole idea about the round table that you're talking about, Jimmy, I just, I think it's really important for people to, to take stock of where you are in your own life and where everybody else is around you because, you know, I've done a lot of traveling and, and it's, it, it may sound trite, but, but I think it's very true in that, um, there, there is one constant that I have discovered in every part of the world, whether it's on the richest streets that you'll ever find or the poorest parts of this world. And that is everyone is concerned with one basic concept. This is the universal truth. They're concerned about making their life and the lives around uh, of the people around them better uh, through family and through friends. And, and that is the circle that you're trying to affect. Um and those are the people that you are the most concerned with. You, you can be in Manhattan uh, here in New York, or you can be living in a mud hut in, in the outback of Africa. Uh, but I think you find that universal truth applies everywhere
2: I think you're right. I think it's a it's a bond that that and quite frankly, I think it has become easier to to find ways to connect. Let me ask you, what was it that you that gave you the ability to get your dad to stop smoking Tipperilla cigars?
3: <laughs> I need to know research. that
2: because you managed to pull it off and did him a heck of a favor.
3: You know, my father, um, God love him. He's a great man. He has an awesome sense of humor, and his relationship with my mom is just top-notch. And he, uh, Yeah, he was a smoker, you know, and uh, we would find his plastic tips. Uh, he smoked Tipperilla cigars back in the day. And we would find them, Jimmy, all over the place, um, <laughs> in every corner that you can imagine. So one day uh, I came home, I think I was in the fourth grade, and I said, Dan, how long have you been smoking? He said, I guess I started when I was, I guess he was 35 at the time, and he said I was, I guess I started when I was 18. And I said, okay, so that's 35, 25, 18, that's 17 years. I said, if you stop Smoking today in 17 years, all that stuff will be out of your lungs. That's what I learned in school today. Wow. And I didn't know it to be true. It's just what the teacher said. And he stopped smoking that day. And um, so that's I, been I, how long? I think, yeah. well, gosh, that was 35, 45, 55, 60. But that was 37 years ago. Amazing story. Wow. You know, and he's and he's with us, and, you know, he has. He, uh, he's doing well, and um, I think those moments in your life, you look back and you think, well, okay, all right, I made a difference there. Well, you and did.
2: They... I, I was not able to get my father to stop smoking. He mm-hmm. eventually passed away from a massive heart attack. How much that contributed to it, I don't know. At I, what age? I, uh, he was uh, 72. It was yeah. in 1985, and you know, I think that generation just grew up smoking cigarettes, and they just, yeah. it was it was what they did, and and i think it was it was the tendency of the times and and of everything they went through and i think that we've learned a lot more about the effects of all that so i, mm-hmm. I again well, my
3: my dad's 72 and it's great to have him around
2: so tell me about the Marriage Encounter because I know your parents William and Georgeanne right are, are very active in that movement called the Marriage Encounter. What
3: what is that exactly? They were you know this goes back in the nineteen seventies. You're raising five kids and you're busy as all heck, right? You're just running around and you lose contact with each other. And I think every every couple experiences this. And they they found this program which was a three day weekend. You would go away on a Friday, come back on a Sunday evening. And for three days, you were well—you weren't locked up or caged up, but you were away at a hotel or some sort of retreat in the country. And the whole focus of of that program was to get your communication lines wide open. And they had a a program where you you would uh, have what they called dialogue, where you would spend ten minutes or twenty minutes at a time writing about a particular topic. Um, and then spend another ten or twenty minutes talking about it, and you know they needed that. You know they were they were at a point in their lives where they were they were going at each other too much, and so they made this weekend and they committed to it. And the, the Sunday night that they came home, Jimmy, they were very different people from that day forward. And it it was evident you could see them walking across the front yard um, at our home out there in the west side of Cincinnati, and they were different people. It it made a difference from from that point forward. And then later in life, when they when they, um, they they would later sponsor some of the weekends on Marriage Encounter, so then they were the ones that were providing the the access for others who were, you know, this this wasn't a a situation where perhaps your marriage was in trouble. It was on the last leg. But it was just couples who wanted to get reconnected. They had an honest interest in their relationship, and they wanted to get back to who they were together because somewhere along the way they'd lost track of each other. So later they got connected with a program called Retrovi, um, and Retrovi was for specifically designed for couples who were having a hard time. And they were on their last leg, and they were ready to throw in the towel and go their separate ways, whether they had children or not and So my parents got involved in that program to give these people a chance to to reconnect and to give it one last shot and i I tell you i, I don 't know how many marriages they saved over time, but it, it, but it was subs, it was substantial
2: well, it really is about connecting because you know if you got together in the first place, there obviously was a connection and I think we all lose connections based on so many things, and I think that that sounds like a fascinating program. You know, when I had a chance to corral your brother, I guess he's your older brother, correct? Mm-hmm. By eleven months. How <laughs> 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 so, that work? I'm younger, by the way. And you know, I'm talking to a. Uh, I guess he was a former linebacker or something, because I said to no, him, "Now I want some secrets here, and you got to give them to me." Uh-huh. He's, he's twice done. my size, so you're have to, <laughs> he can
3: get what he wants.
2: Right, so he told me this great turning point in your relationship. Hopefully, I'm not out of school, but I, 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 it's one of the it's one of the liberties I can take with owning my own show. And that Uh was, he said, you came home from college for a road trip to WVU to watch him play. I guess a linebacker. uh, He was was he a linebacker at Boston College? Yeah, he
3: was. He sure was. They're playing at West Virginia in Morgantown.
2: And you pile in the family van with all your brothers and sisters, and you got a black eye. So what happened? It wasn't
3: just a black eye. I think you could see it from here to, <laughs> from here to the Hudson River. We, uh, we, we had the great fortune of, of all these wonderful road trips as kids because my brother played football at a big-time program. You know, Doug Flutie was the quarterback. They were they were winning games. They were top ten, top five, playing great bowl games. And we got to travel all over the country in our in our blue customized van that we took everywhere, and uh, and see parts of the country that we would not have otherwise. But I was out with a couple buddies the night before. I don't know. Was I was I nineteen? Was I twenty years old? I I can't uh-huh. remember specifically, but. We, um, yeah, we got into a little discussion with, uh, with two other gentlemen, and to be honest with you, I wish I could remember it, but he hit me so hard <laughs> that my memory and my ability to recall is, has been hampered ever since. <laughs> I do remember waking up the next morning in my parents' house, Ooh. and I, I had this, these, these wet napkins all over my pillow, and I said, what is this? And I had gone to bed with ice on my on my cheek, and I went to the bath and I said, "Holy look at that thing!" Wow. I, you know, I so I called my buddies and I said, "Did you get him?" <laughs> 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 Just tell me you got him, because I don't know how, I don't know how this happened. And uh, but he got me good. So I showed up at the football game, and and I was that was a sight to see. Uh, it only got darker and bigger throughout the day, and that's a long drive from Cincinnati to Morgantown when you're feeling like that. And
2: did you? what did you say to your family, you should have seen the other guy? How bad <laughs> off he is?
3: <laughs> I think I would have liked to. But, you know, I'm 5'11", 175 pounds. So I think he was probably twice my size, and he got the best shot in. And all I can do is trust my buddies, and, you know, they – they said they took care of it, so I'll, I'll take we, their we word for it. But we would be proud of you we, coming to
2: Cincinnati. You know, that you, you obviously defended yourself and didn't remember much of it. So, you know, <laughs>
3: yeah. that's
2: why we love Cincinnati so much. The, yeah, uh, my brother
3: won the football game, too. So <coughs> it, it was a trip worthwhile.
2: It's great having an older brother because I went through a similar thing walking down the street at Wisconsin when I was at school, and I, w- I was on a date or whatever, and he was visiting me from Michigan. And somehow, somebody said something in this group, and I said something back, and the next thing I know, I got two guys with their hands all over me getting ready to plow me into the ground. And next thing I know, my brother took care of them all. He was my older brother. And and then after he took care of them, he then grabbed me, and he said, next time, just shut your mouth. And <laughs> yeah. I said, okay. But boy, was I glad he was there to help me. Yeah, so, you
3: learned a lesson, huh? You,
2: you definitely. So yeah. I want uh, to ask you, you, you graduated from Miami University in Oxford, mm-hmm. Ohio, what was your first job out of
3: school um i I, tell you, I had a lot of jobs you know my my father, when I was the age of twelve, he pulled me side he said, "Billy, I got five of you. I can't afford all of you. um <laughs> you're gonna have to pay for your own college. um sorry about that, but I just want you to know the years in his hands. So he gave us the warning, and so I was always working. You know, between the age of 16 and 21, I think I had 19 different jobs. But that was the way I was able to go to Miami University at the time in Oxford, Ohio. Miami was the cheapest state school uh, in Ohio. I, I don't think it's that way anymore, um, and that was part of the, the main reason why I chose it. And it was a, such a great school when when I was. When I was a junior, I had a life-changing experience. You know, this happens to you when you you don't own a passport until the age of 19, and you get a chance to leave the country for the first time. And I took advantage of a program um, where Miami had a school in Luxembourg, a tiny Central European country. And I went over there and lived for six months with the family, and it was truly an eye-opener to be able to hop on a train and go to some European destination every weekend and have an experience that I've never had prior to that. It was really, really Awesome. And it changed my life. It opened me up to new cultures and new people and new places and new history and new religions and and I knew then that I wanted to explore more of that but I just didn't know how. And, and at the same time I was trying to figure out, you know, what kind of a career I was gonna have. And you know, my father sold mattresses for thirty some odd years for certain mattresses in Cincinnati and, uh, and he was great at it and I would see him leaving the house every morning at eight fifteen and coming over for dinner every night at six o'clock and I guess I knew at that time that um, you know if we had to work for 35 or 40 years, I wanted to find something that that I really liked, and it it was my mission to find to find a career where I could learn something new every day. Uh, I I think at a younger age, I figured that I needed to keep my brain stimulated, and if my mind was stimulated, my body and my interests would follow in. And so I found a profession, and that was in television. I remember the first day I walked into a TV station at Channel 5, WWT, in Cincinnati. as an intern, and Steve Fizziok was our sports anchor. And I had a buddy from Miami, who um, Mike Goldberg, who who got me an, an internship at the station. And uh, we were riding up in the elevator from the basement where the newsroom was up to the third floor of the the old uh, building there at Ninth Street and Elm. Sure, and the the elevator open I remember going up and I said hey Steve do you ever get nervous he says ah. you know you do 4000 of these shows and it kind of goes away <laughs> oh. right then the Elevator door opened and across the room I could see this beautiful blue light that bathed the control room and a newsroom behind that and, uh, the, the studio that was used for the broadcast and I, uh, you know, from day one I just, I really thought the challenge to meet a deadline and to be fact, uh, to be fast rather than to be factual and to work under that level of pressure was something that really turned me on and, and I, I was really in love with it from the first day, Jimmy, and, um, so I stayed with it, and when I graduated from Miami, to your question, um, I had a full time job at Channel Five WLWT, the NBC station, as the sports producer. There, making nine thousand dollars a year, and I was I was on top of the world.
2: Well, you know, you know, I uh, I asked this question. I've I've, I've had a, a great opportunity to interview um, uh, people like Leslie Stahl and Bob Costas and now you and and and. And, and numerous other, um, what I call people who have had the opportunity to travel the world, and it seems to me that, that your what you did in college really led to a pretty big wow moment when you were 26 years old. Uh, you know, I, I always refer to people who have turning points in their life when something significant changes or they get this moment. I, mine, I've had a few of them, I'm, uh, and and in particular. When I felt my life was kind of getting a little sideways on me, I went over to Africa and climbed Kilimanjaro and, mm-hmm. you know, and I read a lot and, and watched a few things you had to say. And, and when you were 26, you literally walked away from your job as a sportscaster and backpacked around the world, uh, for, what was it, a year?
3: Yeah, 10 months. And wow. I, I, that was, that was a, that was a tough call to make, but. Uh, When you consider you work six or seven years, and you know you're piling all this time, attention, and effort into into a career, and then you 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 chuck it all away. But I think that was my first midlife crisis at 26, because I had this over. I had this feeling that if I did not do this or accomplish or complete this mission by the time I turned 30, that my life was over, (laughs) and 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 it was something that I had to had to kick out of my system then. But well, you
2: say even, uh, I heard you say it on the air uh, at some point in time when you said if you're even thinking about it, do it. And and I love that about you. You came across uh, with a vision that I think a lot of people don't ever have the opportunity or make the opportunity because you traveled all over the world. You worked for, you had the chance to to work in missions and with Mother Teresa and you went to Africa and you went to China and you went to places that really prepared you, I think, so much for the understanding that comes with with what you do today and and why you're so incredible at what you do today. Thank you, Jimmy. You you know, it it really was remarkable. I was able to see some of the footage, because you sent videos back and, and some of the backstories. What was probably one of the more memorable parts of that trip if you could, wow. I know you had yeah. many of them, but maybe
3: one or two. I, I think you know when you have an experience like that, so many things are indelible, and uh, you're very right about that. you know you had your experience in Africa, and you, you do have these points in your life that do change you, and they send you off in a different direction. And when you make those decisions to have those experiences, you do not know what sort of person you're going to be on the other side. Uh, because oftentimes they take you and they shoot you in a direction that you cannot predict and that's that's what it did for me and and i I talk a lot about the south island of new zealand which i think is a phenomenal place you have every slice of geography you can imagine on one island whether it's fjords or deserts or glaciers or mountaintops uh, with snow and it's, it's a remarkable place and i just moving from east to west, I, I talked a lot about Nepal when I came home because I thought the spirit of the people was so true and so real. And the experience trekking through the Himalayas at 25,000 feet is, is something that I did not even come close to before. But you know, you, you really start to get a sense of these people and what they're about spiritually. And I also think that the old city in Jerusalem is, is a place where all six billion of us should visit. And I say that because you have three, the three major monotheistic faiths, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, who all claim a part of it to be their own and it 's the only place where I have been in my life where I had to sit for two days and read just so I could under to get a a partial understanding as to what was important to whom and why. And that's a moment that you that that sticks with you too. But all all those experiences out there, Jimmy, it gave me a foundation of knowledge that that I honestly incorporate into my professional life every day. Uh, because you never know, sitting at that news desk, when something is going to pop in some in some foreign place in the world. And if you have that understanding of that education, and at a, at a level where you have seen it and experienced it firsthand, it it only serves to enhance your knowledge.
2: But we're we're um, uh, when we come back, I'd like to talk about some of those moments. Uh, you've covered so many monumental moments throughout your career, like the earthquake in Haiti and Hurricane Katrina, and political conventions. And um, you're amazing at it. Uh, I, I we're talking with Bill Hemmer. Uh, we're honored to have you on the show. We're going to take a short break. Uh, this is Jimmy Gould on A Current Life, uh, brought to you by Smartwater, Wild Things Gear, and Ad Space Small Network. Uh, we'll be back in a second.
4: At Wild Things, we've been making alpine clothing and packs right here in the USA since 1981. In fact, we began by stitching together extremely light climbing gear that guys on the mountain were trying to make on their own. It was a big deal in 1981, making Wild Things the gear of choice for some of the world's most demanding alpine climbers. Of course, the climbs and the climbers are now the stuff of legend. Inspiration for the next group to realize the freedom of moving over rock and ice in a fast and light way. The rest, three decades of elation, misery, epics, and near misses, we put back into everything we make. Light, durable, functional, packable. Wild Things Gear is made and tested by those who live in it. Available exclusively at wildthingsgear.com. Stay wild.
2: Very rarely does our news media spotlight some of the good things that are happening in our world. For more of these good stories and the people that are creating them, tune in to Bread for the Journey with Mariana Cacciatore. Whether these good acts stem from personal tragedy or just a desire to help out and make this a better world in which to live, you'll find inspiration in every week's program. Connect with those that are doing something great for a change. Listen for Bread for the Journey, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
0: You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is a current life at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program.
2: Welcome back to A Current Life. Uh, this is Jimmy Gould, and we're honored to have with us today Bill Hemmer. Bill, you were talking a lot about that decision to go and travel around the world when you were 26, and I did want to ask you what it was like to spend a little time with Mother Teresa. Oh,
3: uh, remarkable. Uh, I was I was so impressed by the amount of strength she showed. Uh, but she was working in a town that, that... There are not many places in this world like Calcutta. And what I specifically remember is... Uh, the mass that would be held at six o'clock in the morning at the at the, uh, the main mother home, uh, the main mother house, or the prayer service at night. <laughs> it was, um, if all this, the cacophony of that city is, it's extraordinary, Jimmy. It just, it comes at you from, I, I live and work in Manhattan. You think this place is, you know, is on steroids when it comes to interaction with other people and cars and buses at times. And that place is just, uh, it'll blow your mind. But, you now she was there and she was carrying out her mission i I've spent some time with her visited many of her clinics in calcutta and and then did a lot of reading about her and that she really thought she you know she lived her life um, as if she were walking in the shadow of jesus christ and and that is truly what she felt and felt it was her mission to to carry out to carry out whatever she could do to improve the lives of some of, the, um, of some people who were living in one of the most poverty-stricken areas of our world. And, you
2: had to feel, I would imagine, when you were around her, uh, almost glow about just feeling better about yourself and, and about humanity. Yeah, you know, I
3: remember physically her hands are enormous. And and they, you know, maybe they it foreshadows maybe herself as a younger woman growing up in Albania, and um, perhaps with what she was like physically at a younger age. But I just remember her hands because she she communicates with her hands and her eyes, and and that's the way she she worked the room. And I, I will tell you that she she understood her position in life. She knew that people were making great efforts to come and see her at work and she was not she was not going to disappoint them she would take time and speak to you and look you in the eye and if it was an autograph or or a picture although i don't think she liked that part of the job she understood that that was that was part of it and uh, that was impressive to me
2: so when you come back to uh, After traveling, you're in your around 26, 27 years of age. What was the next thing that really you encountered? What I, you, you know, that? I had a great
3: boss, a news director by the name of Jim Zarch, and I told him, I took him to lunch. I said, Jimmy, I'm, I'm going to go do something. <laughs> I got to get this out of my system. I'm taking off for a year, and so we worked out a deal where I could come back and work at. Uh, this is WCPO Channel Nine, now the ABC affiliate, then the CBS in Cincinnati. And he said, he said, Anna, I want you to come back and work for us when this is over. And I said, I'll do it, but I want to work in news and and not sports. And so I came home and worked for two years. Uh, It was a two-year contract, and uh, what what an eye-opener that was, just covering the courts and the county and the state and the city and seeing how everything works right down to the state lottery and, and school levies. And a lot of it was perhaps tedious to a lot of people, but what I found, Jimmy, is that When I got done with my day and I was meeting my friends at the bar for a beer and I told them about what I had covered that day, that they were getting interested in it and they were asking me questions about it. and I found myself more interested than I thought I would be and I thought, man, I'm on to something here. And and after a two-year period, when I knew I was not going to advance much further in that station because there were there was some terrific talent ahead of me, uh, I contacted my, uh, an agent, Jackie Harris, who's still my agent today, some 17 years later, and she got me an audition in Atlanta, and I flew down there on the first of June, and what an audition that was! It was nerve-bending,
2: was that terrifying. The interview that you had to write down all the countries that you'd ever been to and their capitals and And how to pronounce certain presidents' names? Right. The
3: uh, the man who ran the news operation there was Bob Fernand. And uh, the only thing I knew about Bob Fernand is that he would not meet with you in his office until he ran you through his audition tryout. And uh, so I flew down to Atlanta, and uh, he set you in this big room. I mean, it looked like a giant warehouse, Jimmy. It was cavernous. Four stories tall, it seemed like. And there were three or four folks in there running a camera and they would give you a stack of papers and you have to read it. It was from the CNN international uh, broadcast. So they would have names like the Polish ambassador to Iraq tucked deep into the script and they wanted to see how you navigated it. And they'd pull out the prompter and they'd mess with your head and try and distract you to see how you you adapted. And and I got through all of that and uh, and Bob got in my ear and he said, I'll see in my office. And I said, "Hot dog!" <laughs> All right, I'm and, on my way. <laughs> uh, he said, "Listen, I got a." He, he, he said, "You know, you're 30, but you look like you're 18." And the only way I'm able to sell you to my boss is if you write down every country you've been to on the back of your resume. And so I scribble down every country that could come to my mind, and um, they offered me a job a week later. Wow.
2: Uh, I mean you truly did have your wow moment at 26 and it all started with you going over to Luxembourg when when you were in in college. I mean it, it sure did. It, and, it you know, and that was the decision
3: it, uh, point that you mentioned earlier that you know many people have that you know once you make that decision and it it it, it can launch you into a whole different life.
2: Do you, do you have a favorite country that you visited? Uh, you mentioned New Zealand. I mean is is there one that stands out for you? I,
3: I I was doing a lot of local travel, which meant in places like China and India where I did not understand the alphabet, I still had to figure out a way to get around. So I was taking buses and trains and taxis and rickshaws and what have you. Um, When I was in India, I was thoroughly frustrated because I was trying to do a lot. I was trying to get to a lot of places in a short amount of time. And I found it enormously frustrating, but as I look back now, I, just, I think about the richness and the color of that country, and how largely peaceful they, they are, um, the Indian people. And uh, I would love to go back, and I have not been back to that country since, but I know it's changed an awful lot, the way they've emerged now into a new economy for itself.
2: Were you and uh, throughout the Middle East? Have you been in several of those countries as well? Uh,
3: I've done Egypt, and uh, a little further south in Sudan, all over Israel, the West Bank, Gaza. Um, I've been to Iraq several times, covering that war, Afghanistan, Pakistan. So, um, yes.
2: So you know, I hear. Um, I actually had a chance last year to visit Jordan and spend some time with um, uh, King Abdullah, and it was an mm-hmm. unbelievable honor because I, I still think he's been one of our great supporters, and uh, and he seems to be hanging in there. I, I I I know there's so many changes going on over there with even with Egypt right now. Uh, mm-hmm do you, how do you see what's happening over there and and the long term effect it may have on yeah um, i wow.
3: i think the arab spring has not played out and that that's obvious um I, there are so many hot spots still we we were getting reports from libya this past week that uh, Pro-Gaddafi forces have taken over a town again. I don't know. How, I don't know if that's right or wrong. It's it's just a story that's being reported there. I, I, I don't know how Egypt goes. I don't think anyone does. Um, I think Jordan dodged the bullet with the protests a year ago, but they seem to have subsided. I think Syria is a huge wild card. Um, you know, the UN is is estimating five thousand killed at this point. Um, but ultimately, the. Uh, the the blank that needs to be filled in is what Iran does with its nuclear program and, you know, how close are they and will they accomplish uh, getting a bomb and if they go nuclear, how that changes all the, the dynamics for that region. I'll also point out that I, I don't think Americans should take their eye off of Iraq. You know, there, there, there have been at least two bombings this week alone and you know, the forces working against the government that's in place now, they're, they're still there. And, you know, we got out of there at the end of December. And how Iraq goes is, is, is something that I think will play out for some time also. So, I'm I don't sure mean to be that, so broad sure on that, that, Jimmy. I just, that, I think there were so many open-ended questions about so many different countries that changed so quickly, um, and just in the past few years.
2: I know, you know, uh, during the debates I heard Newt Gingrich say that uh, he felt that um, the U.S. Embassy in Israel should be moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and I know you've been to Jerusalem and, and you talked about that. What's your thought about that and and, and maybe some of the other things that yeah. you're following with some of this?
3: I think the current Israeli government would, would really like that. Um, I don't know if it's something that will happen anytime soon. I know previous administrations have pushed for it. Um, just so people have an understanding, the, the current embassy in Tel Aviv, if we were moved to Jerusalem, would be, you know, the Arabs would take that, the Palestinians would take that as a, as a, um, a well-directed insult. Right. Um, but I, I have been to that country, and it's phenomenal. And uh, I think from an American perspective, when you consider it's the only elected democracy in the, that region of the world, you know, that, that's the attachment America has to it. And and that's why you see, you know, administration after administration giving Israel support. You know, Israel has fought so many wars and they've won all of them. Well, what happens if they lose? Right. And when I covered the conflict between Israel and Hezbollah in the summer of 2006 and we were up in the northern part of the country, near a town called Kirat Shmona and Matula, and we were literally because of technology, Jimmy. We were between the front lines. Hezbollah was on one side of the border; the Israeli army was on the other, and and they were firing back and forth. I'm I'm not, I'm not suggesting it was a good decision that we made about where we placed ourselves, but because of technology, we could broadcast live and bring bring a war to viewers around the world, which is phenomenal uh, in itself. But Hezbollah was chased out of southern Lebanon, and I can only imagine the way they've built itself back up again, and Israel's going to lose one of these, and and what does the United States do when that happens? I I would contend that an administration, be it Republican or Democrat or otherwise, would have no choice but to go in and back Israel.
2: Well, that's my feeling, and and I think one of the big issues that we're all wrestling with and seeing... uh, you know is is how long Israel will wait on the nuclear development in Iran and 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 really what's going on behind the scenes here cuz obviously you know it I haven't uh uh spent time in Israel like I I did in Jordan and uh uh you know it 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 seems to be a very delicate time right now not just with all the other uprisings but particularly what's going on in Iran
3: yeah and um to that end there are those that will argue that a nuclear iran means a stabilized middle east and they'll point to the situation between afghanistan and india and maybe they're right but i don't know if the israelis have the capacity now to make a quick strike in iran and get out uh, having destroyed their their its program right um there is a real good chance that the Iranians have taken the stuff way underground, and I know we have the bunker busters, but even that is difficult for us, and we have pinpoint strikes, but even that is difficult for us. And I think it would be an enormous challenge for these Israelis to do that. And I'm not saying they're going to. Uh, this is just what's talked about between New York and Washington, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Um, but that that would uh, that would be something that that obviously would be a huge challenge for them. I, I will point out that. Whatever software program was corrupted a year ago was a master stroke that that truly set back its program, but not entirely, only six months to a year. And right. if you watch the various assassinations that are taking place among these nuclear scientists and professors in Iran, it's clear that either the Israelis or the CIA or both, um, they've got a pretty good eye on that or the Iranian regime.
2: Well, you certainly get that sense when you read about that, and, and it's fairly clandestine. And uh, you know, I was thinking about the so many. I mean, you've you've been all over the world, and you've you've led such an incredible life. Uh, and then you've witnessed things like the earthquake in Haiti and the Hurricane Katrina, and you know, just so many devastating things. How how does it affect you personally, and also allow you? I asked Bob Costas when he interviewed Sandusky mm-hmm. about how he was able to maintain his objectivity and just almost silence while he was hearing the answer. And,
3: yeah.
2: you know, he said, you know, that's my job. I'm professional about it, but, but don't think for a second it didn't affect me because it did. Uh,
3: yeah. how, how does it affect you? How do you go? Home I, um, it? I think we all have like a deep, dark corner of our own mind where we put all that stuff, frankly. Um, I think I've always been able to keep the emotions at arm's length. Um, but when you are on one of these stories where you can honestly see the lives of millions and millions of people changing before you, and you have the responsibility and the duty to relate to your audience at home, to that little black circle that you're staring into, and you want them to trust what you're telling them, Based upon the accuracy of your reporting and the, your credibility, well, that that is something you you cannot sacrifice or surrender or allow it to be damaged ever, um, because that's your that's your best ally in in circumstances like that. However, um, I think Haiti kind of broke the bubble for me on that, where I was able to walk through with thick skin and broad shoulders and. Um, and know that I had a ticket out, no matter how difficult the circumstances, because we as journalists, we're, you know, we're, we're parachuting in to crisis all around the world, wherever that may be, and we have the option to leave. But the people who live there who are being affected by these decisions and these life-changing events do not. So perhaps that was what I, many of us probably lean back on. But Haiti was different, and Haiti was different because it is such a poverty-stricken country where its government has, has crippled its people decade after decade after decade. I saw $2.6 billion have been donated to Haiti since the earthquake. $2.6 billion would be able to rebuild that entire country if the money was spent the right way. Right. And so here you have all these, you know, neighborhood after neighborhood and street after street that has just devastated. And Jimmy, you could drive forever and never see the end of it. The hmm. devastation was that large and such a massive scale. And we had the ability to, to get around with uh, little satellite units where we could uplink throughout the city of Port au Prince. and um, we would we would station ourselves outside of a school or a hospital or a hotel on the hill where they were they had rescue workers who would come in from all over the world france the united states fairfax virginia germany japan and you know they had special tools to go in and take people out which was a wonderful thing to recover somebody who was alive or or to recover a body so that it's not left to rot and you could have a proper burial but the most striking experience was when you knew somebody was in there that was alive and amputations were quickly happening where it was either a leg or an arm or both in order to get that person out. And, and that was happening every hour of every day, and it was a remarkable thing to go through. And it got to me and everybody else who was there. The other remarkable thing about that story that I want to express to you is that i I'm a proud American, and I'm not afraid to say it, but never have I, I've been to a place where the American military so impressed me as the U.S Air Force did at that airport in Haiti. If you recall, there were missions being sent from all over the world to land in that airport, and they were being turned away because the U.S. Air Force ruled the ground. And they made it clear that this place was a mess. Even if you could land and unload your, your equipment and gear, uh, we have nowhere to put it, and we have no way to get it into town with the people who need it. And within 24 hours, the United States Air Force, a military that's been at war for 10 years, and I would contend the military is better now than it's ever been at any point in our, our, our country's history. Our military is so good you can choose it for a career for yourself, and you can make a living off it for a lifetime. It's that good. It's
2: funny. Uh, My next question was really in regard to uh, uh, General Hugh Shelton, who is a very good friend of mine and was our chairman of the Joint Chiefs during 9 11. And I agree with you. I've learned so much about our military and how special we are to have what we have uh, every day. And um, I grew up during Vietnam, and it wasn't like that, or at least it wasn't viewed that way, and I think we had a lot of healing to do. Uh, You know, I asked him what it was like uh, working for two different presidents, one worked for both Bush Mm -hmm. and and Clinton in the the most uh, important military job, and and not to draw the exact correlation, but you came from CNN to working for Fox, Uh, and I'm just (laughs) curious the political differences, maybe some of the maybe some of the reasons or whatever uh what it's like in working for Fox versus CNN and and you know uh because uh, I know he said you know you have a job to do and it didn't matter whether it was a Republican president or a Democratic president I knew what my job was
3: in the military yeah um, yeah my job here is a journalist and a reporter first right. and um and, and that has not changed uh, I, I Ted Turner was a visionary he created cable news and hats off to him for what he built the operation not just in atlanta but across the world it's it's so impressive and the opportunity to, to, to see so much history i am forever indebted to the bosses who sent me on those assignments um, but working here at the fox news channel it's like playing for the new york yankees <laughs> and it's it's such an impressive operation And if ted turner invented cable news roger ailes my direct boss who the founder and ceo of the fox news channel he um, he made cable news essential, and he made it influential. And if you think about the big personalities that walk around this building, that that dominate their sector of the cable universe, it, it is so impressive. And I think also, you know, so, so many of the you know what we do is still a business, as you well know. Um, the last show I worked on at CNN, it was called American Morning, and we had a staff of sixty-five. And it's, you know, we have three hours of TV content a day, which is a lot. And I came over to Fox and we have a staff of twelve. Which is, which is quite a change. And the reason it is that way is because this place is built to, to be more nimble and to be fast and to turn on a dime. You know, when the news changes is so that you can stay not with your competition, but ahead of them. And it's a, it's, it's a system that works.
2: Well, I'll tell you, 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 uh, Fox is um, better that you're better off that you're there. You've done a wonderful job. I've heard wonderful things about Roger, and you know we only got a few minutes left. I do want to ask you. You know, for some advice that you could leave with our younger listeners this country this this show goes into one hundred and eighty seven countries, and we have quite a following and yeah. and it's a new show. What would you say to some of those listeners in the next minute that aspire to kind of follow their passions like you've done in yeah. your life
3: uh, great question you know follow what you google is what I say. You know what are your interests? What do you find searching you know through the internet that you want to find more about I, I think the great uh, the best tool you have in journalism, frankly, is your level of curiosity. So no matter the story that you're presented with, if you're curious, you know, you will dig in to find out more about it. And whether you're writing or you're on television or you're a radio reporter or news, whatever the, the medium might be. And I no. also think that it, when you're a younger person, you don't realize the benefit of, of writing courses, be it in high school or college, because no matter what career you choose... You are going to be judged on every email and text message you send to a potential employer or boss. And they're gonna make an immediate judgment on your on your grammar and your ability to, to speak. Well you've and,
2: you've you've been incredible. I mean I, first of all, I hope I can get you back someday on this show. Uh we've we've uh, we've been very fortunate to have Bill Hammer share his journey with us, uh we're out of time. I'd like to thank our listeners for turning into a current life on the Voice of America Variety Channel. Uh, this is your host Jimmy Gould signing off, and and join us next Friday at 3 p.m. for a special Super Bowl Friday, and uh, at Eastern Time for another inspiring hour. Uh, until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with much hope, inspiration, success, and my my deep appreciation to you, Bill Hemmer, for your time with us today. Great to be with
3: you, Jimmy. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, and all the best to you. Thank you.
0: Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week.